Amen. Would you remain standing and we'll give attention to our passage today from the book of Romans as we continue in our series, our journey through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And we're in chapter three, we're gonna read through verse 20. So Romans three, verses one through 20. This is God's word to you today. Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there's great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God, Paul writes. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, it doesn't mean that God will be unfaithful. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view, Paul writes. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me, a sinner, if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory. And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we all have already shown, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace and they have no fear of God. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. Verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we really are the word of God to you today. You can be seated, thank you. Well, my name is Chris. I'm grateful to have each of you here today. And just to say before we jump in, we started an an earlier service today at 8.15 and had several people there. And uh, if you're inclined to move there, would uh, appreciate that to continue to free up seats at our 9.30 service. This service has been at capacity for several months and our 11 o'clock service is consistently over 80% full. So. Uh, If you're looking to make a missional move to free up a seat for a neighbor or friend who uh, might be on their way here in the next few months, especially as we head into the holiday season, uh, we would appreciate it at the 815 service. That would be wonderful. In 1905, the Daily News uh, sent a question to the leading scholars, philosophers, authors of the day. And the question, which maybe is an appropriate question for us to ask, especially this week, the question that they posed to all these leading scholars and academics and authors was, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And of course, they received all kinds of replies. 
uh, socioeconomic uh, destructure, uh, political things, uh, the, the economy, uh, the climate, uh, d- different entities and people, uh, different individuals that they called out that were wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton, the famous author, uh, also received that question from the Daily News, what's wrong with the world? And his reply stood out from everybody else's reply that called out different people and places and structures and things in the world that were wrong. G.K. Chesterton's reply was simply this, dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And maybe that's the point of Romans 1 through 3. Paul, after a brief introduction of himself as an apostle and a doulos to Christ, and a brief introduction of the gospel and what the good news of Jesus really is, immediately goes in to a section in chapter 1, verses 18, through chapter 3, verse 20 in our passage today, about the brokenness of all humanity. And he begins to painfully describe how all of us are lacking in some way or form or fashion that before God we don't meet the standard. That what's wrong with the world, it's, it's me. And so Paul begins to meet his audience in a very painful way. And trust me, even preaching the last several weeks, it's been uncomfortable to talk about the brokenness of all different types of people, all of humanity indeed. And Paul now is going to conclude his argument, if you will, about the the bad news of brokenness. And it's all meant to be a setup to the good news of the gospel. And for some of us last few weeks, you just said, let's just get to the good part. Let's just get to the good news. And you'll hopefully remember this the rest of your life that I've repeated over and over again. You can't know how good the good news is until you what? Until you know how bad the bad news is, right? You remember, you can't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is a part of the good news. You can't tell somebody that they need to be saved unless they know they need to be saved. You can't tell them that Jesus came to rescue if you don't know that you need to be rescued. And so again, Paul, after a brief introduction of himself and the tenets of the gospel begins to get into this idea of brokenness, the brokenness of the Gentile in verses 18 through 32 in chapter one. And then in beginning in chapter two, he begins to talk about the brokenness of the the Jews. And then in our passage today, he says, look, we're all in the same boat. Whether you grew up as a Jew, a Gentile outside the circle of God, every single one of us, every person in between is broken and in need of the gospel. And in this way, I want you to see that Paul, even though it may not feel good, is actually taking a giant step towards his audience, the Roman church, and all of humanity in meeting us in our deepest need. And that's what preaching is after all. It's standing between God's truth and the condition of people. If you stand too close to people and you only just preach to people and it's always about people, then it's, as you've heard me say, it's six steps to a better you. It's self-actualization. It's you can be the best version of yourself and all of this jargon. If you stand over here and it's all about just God's truth and I never understand God's people, I never understand the audience that I'm writing to, I never understand the brokenness of humanity, then it's saying, here's the manual and the information, just read it for yourself. But preaching is standing between God's eternal truth and the condition of brokenness in people. And this is what Paul beautifully does as an evangelist, as somebody who desperately wants people to know Jesus, to find him and to to follow after him. This past week, uh, myself and a few members of our team were able to be in Montreat at the home of Billy Graham, 
for a few days. It was so wonderful to be there in that place where he prepared his Los Angeles crusade. He prepared his, his London crusades. Uh, one of the members of our team, uh, his mom was, uh, was saved at the 1958 Charlotte crusade. He prepared that message there and we were in that room. And it just was amazing to sit there and to think about a person, a group of people that had their mind on others, that that wanted other people to know Jesus here, near, and far. And I love what Billy Graham said. He said, I prepared every message with the Bible in one hand, the eternal truth of God, and a newspaper in the other hand, the condition of humanity. And that's what preaching is. And this is what Paul was doing. He was meeting his audience in the condition that they were in. What was the condition? Let's just back up and give some context. The Roman church was started by Jewish pilgrims that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. What was Pentecost? Pentecost was a Jewish festival that happened, you can get it from the name, 50 days after Passover. So Jews were back in Jerusalem 50 days after Passover and more importantly, the resurrection. And it's at that time that God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. The church is ignited. Peter stands up. He preaches two Psalms and from the book of Joel and 3,000 people come to Christ that day. And what happens after that? They go home. They go all over the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth with the message of the gospel, including Rome, which was the known ends of the earth that day. And so these Jewish pilgrims that met Jesus through the message of the gospel, the same gospel that Paul is preaching here, they go to Rome and they plant a church in their home and it begins to grow. And then Claudius in AD 49, the emperor Caesar kicks out all the Jews from Rome, including Priscilla and Aquila. We'll get to them later on in Romans. And during that five plus year period, the Gentile believers took leadership in the church because the Jewish believers weren't there. And they began to bring in all of their worldviews and all of their understandings of humanity and a lot of their brokenness. And then the Jews return and guess what happens even inside the church with people who follow Jesus just like us? Politics, preferences, conflict, disunity, over what should be in the church, over what they should do, what, how they should do certain things. They begin to have all kinds of different conflict. And so Paul meets them in their real problem of disunity and begins to preach a message of unity. And the message is the message of the gospel because Paul understands that it's only Jesus and the essence of the simple message of Christ that can unite the church. And the same is true today. In other words, what Paul is saying is keep the main thing the main thing. When you lose the gospel and you lose Jesus, nothing else matters. And so he comes in strong and Paul gets to work. And verse 18, helping people to understand that all of them are broken and in need of Jesus. Why does Paul do this? Painfully, he's prying our hands open so that we understand that this is the posture that we must come to Jesus with. Any other posture won't do. And so for three painful chapters, Paul is prying our fingers open to help us understand our need for the good news. Again, you can't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. And the bad news is bad, but the great news is glorious. And you can't appreciate it until you know your need for grace until your hands are open to receive the gospel. And so Paul understands this as a great evangelist standing between truth and people. He wants people to come with an open hands and he's prying their hands open again, if you're taking notes. Specifically in Romans 1, 18 through 32, he's prying their hands open from self-centeredness. 
and this idea that life is all about me. And by the way, none of this is new. This, all, this goes back all the way to the beginning of brokenness in Genesis 3, acutely to Babylon in exile when Nebuchadnezzar famously said, I am and there is none beside me. In other words, I'm an entity to myself. I'm a free agent. I do whatever brings me the most pleasure. I do whatever brings me the most joy and happiness in life and everybody else be damned. I don't really care about you, really. I just care about me. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. That's the self-centeredness of a Gentile culture, a godless culture, a culture that we're awash in today that says, I am and there's none beside me. There is no law, there is no right over me. I determine what's right and wrong. I determine what's moral and immoral. And so Paul is addressing this self-centeredness. But then in chapter two, because remember the church, most of the church in the first century were illiterate. They couldn't read these words, so it was read to them. So they're all together, Jew and Gentile in the church, reading this letter from Paul. And the Jews, when they're reading, uh, when they're reading Romans 1, 18 through 32, are going, this is wonderful. I, we love this message. He's calling out all the Gentiles. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and you Jews think that you're better, but you're worse. Whoops. Why? Because you knew the truth. You had God's law. You grew up in church. You learned the stories of God. Your parents told you about Jesus. You grew up in the circle. You ate from the table and you still rebelled. You still were self-centered. You're still broken. And he begins to unpack not self-centeredness, but self-righteousness. That I can be good on my own. And that's Romans 2 if you're taking notes. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is self-centeredness. Romans 2 and following is self-righteousness. And both of them, Paul is trying to painfully pry his audience and maybe us too, right? Maybe sometimes we're self-centered. Anybody? Maybe sometimes we're self-righteous. Anybody? Maybe sometimes we're both together at the same time. And Paul is opening our hands to understand that we have to lay that down and surrender in order to be able to receive the goodness of the gospel. A righteousness that comes from God and not from ourselves. Paul is relentlessly making his argument and it lands in verse nine. If you have your Bible, look at it with me. Romans three, verse nine. The second part of the verse says, all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. So whether you're self-centered or you're self-righteous, whether you grew up outside church and the family of God, not knowing the things of God, or whether you grew up inside the house in church, knowing the things of God, all people are under the power of sin in and of themselves. And what Paul is really addressing here for his audience in Rome and for each of us here today, for those of you watching online, what Paul is addressing here is identity. Where are we finding our identity? And for the Gentile, it was their freedom. I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do. Licentiousness. I don't, I, I, I don't have any command or license or law over me. I can do what I am my own license. I can do whatever I want to do, whatever makes me happy. As long as you're happy. How many times do we hear that? Well, I did this, I did that, and I did that. But you know, I'm happy. Well, as long as you're happy. 
so glad that you're happy. Look, if you want to be a good Christian friend to people around you, don't ever say those words. As long as you're happy. That's basically saying that everything that you're doing is justified if you feel a momentary sense of pleasure or happiness. And it's the Babylonian way. It's a godless way that says you're a free agent and you can do whatever you want to do. And that was what Gentiles worshiped was their freedom. As long as you're happy, do whatever you want to do. But the Jews, where did they find their identity? Not in their freedom, in the law. We were given the law. We were given the revelation of God. We'll get to that in just a minute. What does that mean? We were given the commands and the prophecies and the prophets and the poets. We were given all this understanding about God. And now we find our identity in achieving that on our, in, our, in and of ourselves. And we feel better about ourselves and we stand over people in that. We think we're better than other people in our self-righteousness because our identity is in our goodness. What about you? Where are you finding your identity? This is a message about identity. Who are you? What makes you good or righteous? For the Gentile, for the godless, it was, there is no law. It's me doing whatever I want to do that makes me happy. For the Jew, for the religious, it was, I'm good enough. I can be righteous in and of myself. What about you? You know, there's, there's three basic postures here. And maybe, maybe you'll hold on to this. The first posture of the Gentile, those that, that live for themselves, and maybe that's where you're at where you would say there is no law, there is no truth. So I just, I do whatever I wanna do. And the posture of the Gentile was basically this, when they hear the gospel, when they hear the story of Jesus. Now, what does this posture communicate to you? Does it communicate that I'm open to hearing what you're, what you're saying? Maybe you'll think about this with your friend at coffee this week or your spouse or a coworker. When you find yourself going, what does that communicate? I am shut down. I am not listening to you anymore. I'm thinking about my defense and this doesn't apply to me. I'm not receiving what you're saying. And for the Gentiles, this was their posture. And we see this to all of Paul's letters. He wrote 13 letters to churches and individuals and he preached countless sermons and many people crossed their arms and ignored it and said, this is not for me. Why would you talk about me needing to be saved and rescued? Saved from what? I'm not drowning. There is no law. There is no truth other than what I say. So I'm ignoring this. And that was certainly a posture. Here's the second posture. Ready? This is the posture of the religious. Why? Because I'm good enough. You're telling me that I need a savior after I've been doing all of these things I live a moral life. I'm, I'm doing all these rituals and practices and you're telling me it's for naught? That I still need to be rescued by a savior? That I still need to find my identity in Jesus and not in keeping the law? Well, now I wanna fight you. And we see that with Jesus. Who are the people that fought Jesus? The religious. Why? Because they thought they were good enough on their own. What's the third posture? We see this in Athens when Paul is preaching and a response to his letter. And it's a response that he desires. It's certainly a response that God wants from all of us. It's what Paul is building towards in all this. It's not this posture. It's not this posture. It's this posture. That I have finally pried away or allowed God 
to pry away my self-righteousness and my self-centeredness so that I come before God with an open hand saying, I need you. What's the one word prayer that God wants to hear more than any prayer from us? Help. But I can't say help unless I know I need help. And my, my self-centeredness and my self-righteousness keep me from this posture. And Paul knew that. So he's painfully going through and opening our hands to receive, not to try to take righteousness on our own or stiff arm it and cross our arms and reject it, but to open our arms to receive because that's how the gospel has to be taken in, to be received as a gift by faith from Jesus. And Paul, of course, as a great attorney, he was a first-rate attorney. He was an expert in the law and he's making a legal argument. He's making an intellectual argument primarily from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3. Uh, and then he begins to anticipate people's questions like a good attorney would. What is, what, what's gonna be the retort to my argument? What's gonna be the comeback that people are gonna say here? And if you look at uh, verses one through eight in Romans three, if you have your Bible, if you have some notes that you're taking, Paul basically has a Q&A session with himself in front of his audience to try to answer what he anticipates will be the four uh, questions to what he's putting out there about brokenness of the Gentile, the Jew, and of, and of all people. And he's trying to anticipate their objections. And the first one is, are you saying, look at verses one and two, are you saying that there's no advantage to being a Jew? Are you saying, in other words, that there's no advantage to being religious? Are you saying there's no advantage to growing up in a household of faith or attending uh, religious services and understanding uh, the things of God, the stories of God? Uh, for his Jewish audience, their identity again was in their Jew Jewishness, in their goodness. And Paul says, of course not. Of course there's an advantage to growing up in the house of God. For those of you who grew up going to church, who had a mom or a dad that believed in Jesus, that taught you the things of God, that read the Bible to you, that taught you the stories of God, of course there's an advantage to that. Of course there's an advantage to understanding that. But you can't find your identity just in that. That's what Paul is saying. Of course, there's an advantage because you have the full revelation of God. You had the commands of God. You know the stories of God, but it's not enough in and of itself. Here's the second question. Look at, look at verses three and four. Well, is God, and this is a question that many people in our culture ask too, by the way. Is God unfaithful because God's people are unfaithful? You know, the first Bible that most people will read in your workspace, in your family, in your neighborhood, the first Bible that most people will read is you. So before they get to Romans, they're gonna get to Bob and Sally and Jessica and Chris and Jen and Mike. They're gonna read you, your words, your actions, your posture towards God and towards them. And Paul anticipates this and he says, well, just because the people of God are unfaithful, does that mean God's unfaithful? Look at verses three and four. He says, of course not. God is true no matter what. God's character isn't dependent on the character of his people. The third question he asks here is, and this is, this is probably the question that many people in our culture ask, not just about Christianity, but about all religion, but I think specifically about Christianity because of the exclusive claims of Christianity and Christ. Is this really fair? 
I mean, is it, is it really fair for you to hold me accountable? Now, Paul addresses this in Romans 1 with general revelation. And people understand the basic building blocks of humanity and society because of how God has ordered his world, if you have an eye to actually see it. But he's anticipating the question here of fairness. Now, let me give you the answer. This is Chris speaking here. Let me give you the answer that if my kids were here, they would roll their eyes too, because this is my answer in our house. Because we didn't teach our kids when they were born to say the word no. Did you teach your kids how to say no? No, they picked that up from us and they came out knowing how to say no to a lot of different things. And not long after that, after they could put more words together, one of the first phrases that was uttered in our house from all of our kids is, it's not you too in your house too. And we've said that, haven't we? We've all said that multiple ways. Some of us still say it today as grownups. It's not, and you can just stomp your feet. It's not fair. Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Fairness ended in Genesis 3. Now, everyone watch this. We need to count our blessings that God doesn't treat us fairly. So Paul is anticipating this and saying, but you're going to say it's not fair. No, God is fair. There's no one who is righteous and can judge but God. So he's able to be the judge and no one else. Now, another thing my kids would roll their eyes at is every time they say that, I would say the fair is where you get cotton candy. So you can use that with your kids too. That there is no such thing as fair. Fair is where you get cotton candy and it doesn't exist here. If, if fairness was the standard, we'd all be on the outside looking in. So Paul says, of course not. What's the fourth question? The fourth question, verses seven and eight is, and this is, this is wonderful. If sinning makes God look better, and I, Paul almost can't even finish the question, but you know he's gotten these questions. If my overt, glorious, spectacular sinning makes God look even more righteous and holy, then shouldn't I go on sinning so that God can look better? And Paul says, if you're even asking this question, right? If this is even a question that is formulated in your mind, then you're already standing in condemnation. You're already condemned. Your mind is not on the things above. And then we get to verse nine. Let me just read it fully because here's the conclusion. What shall we conclude? So what's the answer to all four questions? What's the answer to everything that Paul's been building since Romans 1.18 about brokenness of the Gentile, of the Jew, of everybody in between, of all of humanity? What should we conclude? Well, Paul's gonna spell it out here in Romans 9. He says, well then, what should we conclude? What's the answer? That we Jews are better? Remember, Paul's a Jew. That we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we've already shown that, what's the word here? All, what does all mean? All means all and that's all, all means. All means all, that's all, all means. All people, whether Jew or Gentile, whether you grew up inside or outside, religious, non-religious, all people are under the power of sin. That we're all being influenced by sin and brokenness. And it's pervasive in every part of us. Part of us, if all means all, and that's all all means, and all of us are under the power of sin, then it's corrupted us entirely in all the ways. And Paul's gonna walk through how that happens and the effects of sin on all of us. Look at verses nine and 10 and following. And I wanna point something out here. 
up until this point, Paul has uh, mainly made an intellectual argument. Again, as a first-rate attorney, as a litigator, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's making a point-by-point argument about the brokenness of humanity with the Gentile, with the Jew, with all people. Now he's going for the heart. And for those of you who are attorneys in here, he's going for uh, the closing argument, if you will. And instead of going for the head, he's going for the heart. He's, he's, he's making an emotional appeal to his audience, to all people, because all of us are under the power of sin. And why do I say this and how do I know this? Because he's actually quoting from Psalms and Isaiah. And the Psalms are collections of poetry. Isaiah was a prophet that wrote poetically. He's, these, are, these are the greatest hits, if you will, of the Psalms and Isaiah, going for the heart, the emotion of the power of sin and its effect on all of our lives. And he starts with the standing before God. Look at verses nine and 10. We've already read nine. Let me read 10 to you. Paul says, as the scriptures say, so he's gonna make his closing argument here from the scriptures, from the Psalms and Isaiah. And he says, no one is righteous, not even one. Righteous is a legal term. Righteousness is a legal term, a standing. And he's saying none of us can stand before God and and claim righteousness because of our self-centeredness or our goodness. We can't. And so our standing from God has been affected by our sin because we're all under its power. All of us are going to be guilty before God. That's what Paul is saying. But he goes further. He says the effect of this power of sin over all of us is in our minds, our our thinking. Look at verse 11, the first part. No one is truly wise. There's a lot of people that think they're wise. There's a lot of academics, a lot of intellectuals, a lot of people that have all kinds of letters after their name that would tell you that they're wise. But Paul says, because of the corruption of brokenness and sin, none of us are truly wise. Now, I'm gonna, this is how I would say it. You don't have to quote this or you can, you know, whatever. Sin makes you stupid. Okay, it does. I, I, I can be a testimony of that, of my own brokenness and sin that has made me do some spectacularly stupid things. Maybe, maybe you too, I don't know. And certainly very smart, intellectual, academic people who have all kinds of higher degrees have done stunningly stupid things because of sin. Now, that's just my way of saying what Paul is saying here, of how pervasive and corruptive sin is in our minds. But not just our minds. Look at the second part of verse 11, our motives. So it's not just that we're not, you know, truly wise. There's no one truly wise, but no one is seeking God. Our, our, our motive in and of itself is not purely seeking God. Even those who are religious, there's ulterior motives to seeking God. That there's something that is um, you know, a, a self-centered righteousness or a selfish desire. Even in our own religiosity, our motives are not completely pure. And here's the deal, guys. If any of us are seeking God, and for those of us who are in the room and watching, I believe all of us are seeking God. We're wanting to know more of God, wanting to to be more like God. The only reason why we seek God is because God sought us. The only reason why we have any understanding, any desire to seek God is because the Holy Spirit is drawing us to God. That's what the scriptures say. None of us seek God in and of ourselves. It's only God drawing us to himself and seeking after us. And by the way, Christianity is the only world religion that says that God came and sought you first before you sought him. Every other world religion and philosophy in one degree or another says you've got to seek after God or do something for God in order for him to turn his attention towards you, but one. 
It's Jesus coming and being born in a lowly manger. Of Jesus taking on flesh. The word becoming flesh, as John reminded us in John 1, and moving into the neighborhood. God becoming man. Why? To explain himself to us. So we had creation, we had the patriarchs, we had the priests, we had the prophets, we have the scriptures, we have the church, we have all that. But the, the, the biggest revelation, the most glorious revelation of God to us was who? Jesus. Jesus came to reveal God to us. And what Paul is saying here is that none of us in our own motives are seeking after God. Even in our religiosity, it's self-centered. It gets worse, guys. Verse 12, our wills. Look at verse 12. He says, all of us have turned away. It's not just that we're not seeking. We've turned against God. We've all become useless. Nobody does good. Not a single one. Pay attention to the language here. No one. All. These are absolute terms. Even that person, you know, that is generous in your circle, that is kind in your circle, Every single person is corrupted and under the power of sin, Romans 3, verse 9. In our standing, in our minds, in our motives, in our wills, how about 13 and 14? In our words, remember your words build worlds. What's the world that we're building with our words? Paul says in verses 13 and 14, our talk is foul, like a stench from an open grave. Our tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket, remember? So what's in my heart? Jesus said from the overflow of the heart comes the words in the mouth. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And Paul is saying what's down in the well is corruptness, is brokenness, is people under the power of sin, and it's displayed in their words towards other people. Now, the last one, the final punch here of the effect of sin and the pervasiveness of sin on all of our lives and indeed all of humanity is our relationships. So look at verses 15 through 18. And if this isn't a commentary on the week that we've just witnessed together as a humanity, I don't know what is. First of all, he talks about our relationships with others and the corruption of sin and brokenness in relationships with other people. And he says in verse 15, they rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. Now it turns to our relationship with God and our sinfulness and brokenness in relationship to God. They don't know where to find peace. People in the world are looking for peace. They're longing for peace but they think it's in the acquisition of more land, the conquering of other people, getting my way. And there's only one way to peace in the world and that's through the Prince of Peace. It's not a condition of the world, it's a condition of the heart that has to change. So Paul reminds them through the Psalms and Isaiah that people don't know where to find peace. And then here's the punch at the end, the last sentence, verse 18, they have no fear of God at all. No fear of God and consequences for their actions. War is the ultimate, the climax of human depravity, of brokenness, of sin, of raising your arm and your fist against someone else. Verses 15 through 18 is a commentary on the condition of the world in the first century and certainly a condition of the world today. And when it comes to lostness, everyone stick with me here. 
when it comes to brokenness, the losses. This is Paul's concluding argument here about the brokenness of humanity and prying our hands open to see that there's only one who is good. There's only one who is righteous. There's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul is painfully prying away our self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And he concludes by saying, none of us, None of us are able to find peace and none of us fear God at all. And, and the point here is that there are no degrees of lostness. You're not 58% lost and your neighbor's 24% lost. You're lost. This is like the person standing on the beach in Hawaii, three people and saying, we're gonna swim to California. Not a great idea. If there's someone who doesn't know how to swim, maybe they make it 50 yards just past the waves and they drown. Maybe a person like, like you and me could maybe swim a couple hundred yards, but after a while we can't make it anymore, we drown. Maybe Michael Phelps is with us and he can get 100 miles or 200 miles, but eventually he gives out, he can't do it. There's a vastness between us and God, between our brokenness and his holiness and pureness. And this is what Paul is getting at. Whether you're Ma Michael Phelps or you're me, you're not gonna make it. You're lost and there's no degrees. The end state is the same. That without Christ and his righteousness, we're lost. That's prying our hands open to say, I need Jesus. I need the gospel because the law is not a checklist that we keep. It is a benchmark that we fail. The law is not a checklist that we keep. It's a benchmark that we fail. So whenever someone reads the law, looks perfectly into the word, Jesus himself, who God is and his holiness and perfection, there is only one response. I don't care how generous that person is, how kind they are, how merciful they are. All of us, when we look to God and his perfect perfection, have one response. Save me, God, a sinner. Help me, Jesus, a sinner in need of your grace. Have mercy on me, God, a person in need of your grace. This is why Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17, when he started all this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the story of Jesus because it's the power of God of salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile for all who believe. That's why he said it's from faith for faith, from start to finish, it's all about faith. Faith in Jesus, not in myself, not in my own ethic, not in my own morality, not in my own self-centeredness or my freedom. It's faith in Christ. And Paul came to understand that as a person who tried it both ways and came to understand that it's only through Jesus that he could truly be free. If we come to God saying, I'm free, I cross my arms. I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I'm a, I'm, 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 a, I'm a self-made man or woman. I can do whatever I want to do that brings me the most pleasure. I cross my arms and I cut myself off from the good news of the gospel. But equally, if I put my fist up and I say, I'm good. And in my, I worship my goodness. I think I'm good enough because I can go 100 miles and the other person only went 50 feet. But I'm still 1,000 miles away. I'm still broken. So we have to give up our goodness and we have to repent of our rebellion against Jesus in order to be able to open up our hands and receive the goodness and the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. I've got to repent of my goodness. I've got to give up my rebellion 
and ignoring the goodness of God, and I've got to open my hands to receive the free gift of righteousness that comes through Christ alone. Here's the three postures again of Romans 1, 18 through 3:20. I can cross my arms and ignore that I need a savior because there are no standards, there are no rules. Everybody play by your own rules, do whatever you want to do, live however you want to, and isn't that the ethic of the day? But equally, the person who raises their fist and says, I am trying to live a good life. I am a moral person. I am a good person. I'm better than the people beside me. And they miss Jesus too. The only posture is this posture. And I want to close right here because all of this has been building to this moment. What's the point? How does it apply to you by hearing about the lostness of a Gentile, the lostness of the Jews, the lostness of everybody in between? Because you're a part of it. All people All of us together are in the same boat of brokenness. And Paul's painfully trying to get our hands open in this posture. Why? So that we can receive this. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Maybe the greatest preposition in the Bible. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. In other words, this was God's plan from the beginning. Verse 22, we, all of us, are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Don't you see, this is what Paul has been building towards, that you can't know how good the good news is, and that's good news, Romans 3, 21, 22, until you know how bad the bad news is. And that final line, no matter who we are, to those who have their arms crossed, to those who have their fists up, Paul's moving all of us to a posture of opening our hands, no matter who we are, to receive a righteousness that doesn't come from works or self-centeredness, but comes from faith in Jesus alone. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you, thank you for coming to us, for seeking us out, for turning towards us when we were turning away, for running towards us when we were running in the other direction and for making a way, as Paul says, for making a way that's not by being perfect or good or by being self-centered and doing whatever we wanna do, but by placing our trust, our faith in you, Jesus. So I wanna pray for each person in the room today, for those who have not yet placed their faith in you, that today they would, that they would simply say, Jesus, I turn to you. I place my faith in you. For those who have, that they would be reminded that it's not their goodness that saves them, it's Jesus and that we would continue to remind ourselves of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, every single day. We live in a world that is on fire, on fire with the destruction of sin because we're all under the power of sin and selfishness and brokenness, and that is on full display. And the only answer for the world is Jesus. The only answer for peace is Jesus. The only answer for people giving up their way is to turn to your way. And so we do pray as your people today that more people would turn to you, Jesus, and place their faith in you, not in themselves or their morality or their religion, 
but in you, Jesus. I wanna pray that you would raise up a Paul, just like you did for the church in the first century. Raise up more Pauls among the Jews, among, among the Muslims. Raise up people from within them that find you, Jesus. Make yourself known to them. Raise people up that can proclaim Jesus in the message of grace. May the, may the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac turn back to you. The true fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, it was always about you, Jesus. And we pray that they would turn towards you. And we pray that, that there would be peace, but it would be a peace that's not brokered by people, but be brokered by you. Peace coming into people's hearts that's found through you, Jesus. Until then, we pray for mercy, mercy for the innocent. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise up godly, wise leaders that are listening to you, not themselves and other people that are fools. So we intercede and pray for that today, Jesus. God, thank you for each person here. Thank you for your word. Would you give us the wisdom to know what you've spoken to us individually today and collectively? And would you give us the courage and the faith to follow it? In Christ's name, amen.